Hey Forge family, let's quickly review our last podcast. It was number four and we were in James chapter one verses 19 to 27. The author begins with a charge to look back, verse 18, and then plunged us into a proverb highlighted by the orders to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The next verse James hammered down the lid, saying that the wrath of man cannot achieve the righteousness of God. James had urged his readers to strip off all remaining moral filth that lies within. What he described as wickedness. And then he points to this hinge, the hinge of humility, you know, that leads us to the implanted word of truth. Now, we received that implanted word of truth as part of our new birth in Christ, and that living word in us will save our souls. James then urged us to be word doers by lifestyle, not those who hear and forget, only to remain passive. See, then turns to contrast empty religion with a genuine living version that comes alongside the needy widows and orphans and keeps oneself unstained from the world. Now, in closing the last podcast, I asked what the 21st century equivalent of orphans and widows might look like today. And our discussion this past Sunday pointed out that we still have legitimate orphans and widows, But some are made so by divorce or abandonment. That said, we still have to enfold them and love them as part of practicing a pure religion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your examples and the Gospels. Please keep leading us out as we practice our purity, and we practice caring for those around us who are in great turmoil. Amen. So this podcast is number five. It's focusing on James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So get set to listen with your text of James open with a pen and a notebook. And then as you begin, honor, welcome Holy Spirit to your space. All right, let's read James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you, sir, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery and do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 2. James begins to elaborate on his theme of riches and poverty in the churches. Now remember, these are Jewish believers following Jesus who have been cast out. They're part of the diaspora. They've spread themselves across the Greco-Roman world. And many of them are impoverished. So throughout this passage and much of the next four chapters, James writes more like an Old Testament prophet than a Greek thinker. He begins by addressing brothers and sisters and immediately tells them to stop. Well, well, stop what? You know, to stop holding their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. It's a better translation there, okay? You know, you, you're... Your faith has been placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Shekinah. Okay? And, and when you do that, you see, when you hold, that, you stop holding your faith with attitudes and behaviors that also hold personal favoritism, then we have a problem. Here's the translation, as I mentioned before. It talks about the Shekinah glory of God, which is the localized presence of Yahweh. And when the presence of God shows up, nothing evil can stand. It's judged. The text says Jesus is that manifestation of the presence of God. Simply, favoritism, as mentioned here, is playing up to someone who is popular, influential, generous, beautiful, someone who has nice toys, whatever. James warns his readers, faith joined with favoritism is toxic stuff. Literally, it means to receive someone according to their face, their, their outward appearance. And James says, you readers, you listeners are doing this all the time. So stop it. Faith has no place for the social distinctions of this world. We're called apart from those rules, styles relationships, and obligations of the world system. In verses 2 and 3, James lays out what is plaguing the assembled believers as they gather in synagogues. What follows 
may be a real example from one of James' churches, or it may be a composite picture of favoritism loosed and rampant in congregations. See, that picture is an example of the pressure put on believers to conform to the existing Jewish synagogue rules. But also, they're vulnerable to the pressure that's pushing on them from the Greco-Roman world as it has distinctions in its own society around them. So, step back. Let's talk about the synagogues. This is where the believers are gathered. In the synagogues, the scribes, those are the lawyers of the law, the ones who've memorized it down to the fine, fine, fine points. Those, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the wealthy, and the powerful, they're, they're all seated in front, in the good, in the good seats, okay? And, and the younger ones, the less influential ones, were seated behind them, okay? Now, in, in the Greek-Roman world, there was a refined, centuries-old system of patronage. Patrons could be said to be any class higher than you, okay? They're wealthy and powerful men. They were under social obligation to help lesser fortunate men with their money. So they took them on as clients. So in the Roman, the Greco-Roman world, you have patrons and you have clients. And the patrons use their money to gift others, to assist others, to make loans, to help clients caught up in court cases and taxation problems, land transfers, marriage arrangements, and they help them work out the fine points of the civil law to the benefits of the clients. They even, they even help them get Roman citizenship. In return, the clients were at the beck and call of the patron for political support, security, you know, uh, in other words, they could be called on to actually be guards for the patron and his family, and then to staff various business and, and, and enforce loyalty from other clients as well for the patron. Now, this system of patronage produced family networks obligated to support and defend the patron. That system openly existed for a thousand years after Christ's birth. It still exists in the Mediterranean familial patronage system, it's both for legitimate business and for criminal business. Now, today in the United States, in our nation, there are certain political systems in which much of the same patronage exists, which may be corrupt or focused on the holding and transfer of political power through the generations. The same is true in, in police organizations across the United States in which your mentor would be called your rabbi to guide you through sticky political situations, walking on the razor's edge of the law, and assisting in getting you promotions, all in return for loyalty. Now, go back to verse 2. Note that James is describing a synagogue setting into which a man enters He's described as having literally gold fingers and shining raiment. Okay? He makes an impression. He's wearing his bling and his flash. Now, remember, most followers of Jesus were poor. And this visitor is flaunting his wealth. Now, perhaps he's, he's a slave owner who has come to check out what his property, his slave or his freedman, is actually doing. 
He, he may even have been invited, but he came dressed to the nines. Okay? Or he may be a patron. Come to the assembly in the synagogue to gain honor and gather more client relationships. James says there follows him in the door a man in filthy, dirty clothes. And he's in a state of destitution. He has no other clothing, period. And James leaps in. He points that the wealthy visitor is addressed with honor. Oh, you, sir, please be seated here comfortably. Probably not on the traditional benches in the synagogues, but perhaps in a chair. And the disgusting, unclean man is ordered to stand over there, downwind, in a draft, away from us. Or, come, sit in this position of subjection. That, James says, is blatant favoritism and says, such is sin. His indictment of the readers is that they have become judges with evil thoughts. The word James uses for evil is panaron, from which we get our own word pornography. It's wicked stuff is how James describes the discrimination of rich versus poor. In verse 5, James cries out, he's, he's pointing of God's consistent choice of the poor for himself. See, he, for them to be abundant and overflowing in their faith, <clears throat> and especially those who are destitute, because they have no resources. They turn to God as their only hope. Solomon Adria says, God is on the side of the poor, not because of their poverty, but because they are responsive to him and they are near the kingdom. James inverts the Greco-Roman world system and the synagogue system, turns it on its head, turns it all on its head and says that you guys are honoring the rich and you're shaming the poor. That's sin. In verse 6 and 7, James flat says, you dishonor the poor and you seek favor from the rich in general. And we all do it. We all gravitate toward those who can benefit us. He slams his readers with the charge that these very rich, they're the very ones, the one, these rich ones that are coming are, are the ones uh, you know, that you're courting favor, you're, you're with them. They're the very ones that practice summary arrest. They're the ones who are in the street. They see this Christian and they seize him by the throat and drag him violently into court. The assembled believers were still trying to please their persecutors. Then James says, these same wealthy, powerful creditors and patrons were the ones who were blaspheming the lovely name that Christians are known by. Now, all New Testament, word, New Testament words drawn from the word blasphemia carry meanings of violating the power and the majesty of God. So this wasn't just damning the Christians. This was slamming and violating the power and the majesty of God because the Christians wore his, the name of Christ. Okay. 
Now let's read verse 8 again. Okay. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This royal law, this law of the king, is the perfect law of liberty. The loving your neighbor is drawn from Leviticus 19, and, and the loving your neighbor as yourself is the summary that Jesus used. James says, if you are loving in such a way, if you're really doing this, you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing splendidly. Now note, I think he's twisting the knife. A little bit. Simply implying that when we discriminate against, against one or another, that's not love. And it's not splendid. James would have you know that selective love of a neighbor, of anyone, I love you, I love you less. I can't stand you. I'm going to avoid you. Okay? That behavior in its root is a cover for the attempt to gain advantage or benefit or safety. <clears throat> Who is it that provides that stuff to us? It's not the wealthy. James would further say, your faith reveals itself and how it is lived out. James returns to the word partiality or favoritism in verse 9. It's the same word as in verse 1. He says, when we do that, we're committing sin. Now, this word for sin here is hamartia. And in Greek, it describes missing the target, missing the mark. But here, the failure is moral. Because James says that the word that precedes it, the word commit, you commit sin. You, the word commit is active, willful, and outworking. It's intentional. Transgressors here in verse 9 are violators. They are, they are, they are, they're making conscious choices to violate the royal law. Verses 10 and 11 point out the necessity under Torah. The law Yahweh gave Moses to lead Israel to the place of a desperate need for a redeemer. Okay, James points out that those who would keep that law must keep every bit of it perfectly. There's no allowances for stumbling or for partial obedience. James turns to the passage in the Ten Commandments that starts the dealings with neighbors. And he begins with, do not commit adultery. Followed by, do not murder. Failure with one command is failure to keep the law. James finishes this session with verses 12 and 13, commanding his listeners to live out their faith as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Act that way and speak that way. That's how we're supposed to live out our lives. Act and speak as if we knowingly we're going to be judged by that law of liberty. And how do we hope to succeed at keeping this law of liberty when we fail miserably at keeping the law of Moses? Well, first, we acknowledge we don't have the resources. But Holy Spirit does. He leads us to walk in righteousness, loving the Father and the Son, 
even as he does. Second, Holy Spirit is quick to convict of sin. We are arrested in motion or thought or behavior or action and called back to the cross to be washed clean again. Third, we are called back to the so speak and so act out of our walk of dependent faith to keep keeping the royal law. Verse 13 is a razor. It runs right down the middle. It says, if you show or display or act with no mercy, you can expect a merciless judgment on your action and speech. But, but James finishes with, mercy triumphs or, or boasts over judgment. Now, let me give you a quick Old Testament example of that. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua and the nation of Israel and the armies of Israel are standing on the east side of the Jordan. That river at flood stage is between them and the city of Jericho, between them and the land that God has promised to give them. And Joshua sends two spies over the river to sneak into the city to feel out the vibe of the Canaanite stronghold facing Israel across the river. They enter the house belonging to a prostitute, Rahab. Now the king of Jericho is informed that two strangers, spies really, are, are uh, present in the house of Rahab and demands that Rahab deliver them up. Here, Rahab lies. She says, oh no, my king, those two slipped out of the house and out the city gates just at the point of darkness. Quick, quick, hurry and overtake them. Go after them. Don't let them get away. And then she returns upstairs to the roof where she has hidden the two spies under her flax crop, which she is drying, turning and drying, turning and drying on her roof. She demands of them that in exchange for saving their lives, she and her household will be shown mercy when Israel takes the city. You see, she knows and says, all the land of Canaan is terrified of the Lord God. And she knows that Israel has been given the land already. The spies swear that she and her house will not be in the slaughter. See, the outcome of the crossing of Jordan on dry land and marching around the city seven times and then, and then seven times more, the result is the walls of Jericho collapse inward. They, they fall in on themselves, allowing the army of Israel to just walk into the city, except that the portion of the wall that housed Rahab didn't fall. And she was rescued. Ultimately, Rahab is married to a man named Salmon, descended from Judah. And his son by Rahab is named Boaz, whose son is named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, whose son was King David. This Canaanite prostitute 
under the ban, the judgment of God on Canaan for its deviant, vile culture and worship and its rejection of him, she was destined to die in the fall of Jericho. And she lies to protect the Israelite spies and then pleads for mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. See, that same mercy bears fruit. The line of descendants that lead from her son, Boaz, to Jesus. Mercy has the last word. All right, Forge family. God's intent is that the church be the one place where class, gender, wealth, parentage, age, color, and ethnicity don't matter. And all those distinctions are to be wiped away. We've done a real poor job of that nationally here in the United States. But it has blessed me to watch you move graciously to welcome the flow of homeless men and women through our doors, seating them to a meal and listening to their stories. Wow. Keep being word doers. Those that keep the royal law. And when there's a catch, a stumble, a slip, a stuck place in that favoritism arena, call on the Holy Spirit to redirect you to make it right and righteous. Let's pray. Holy Lord, thank you for your examples of reaching out to the poor, sitting with those whose sin was blatant and to those who thought themselves superior to all others. You've showed us how to live the royal law and to pursue righteousness. We're grateful. Amen. All right, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon.